0: Good morning everyone welcome back to our class and on second kings and before i forget to mention next week we'll be off one more one more time so don't come next thursday and we'll resume in two weeks and then god willing we should be pretty steady for the for the rest of the summer so um, let's have an invocation and prayer and then we'll get right into the text in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven Elisha here, and in specific, two weeks ago, we looked at the axe head recovered. We talked about some of the typology and symbolism in in regard to that used in the church. Elisha as a prefigurement of Jesus, uh, raising uh, the axe head from uh, from the depths, just as our Lord Jesus raises us from the depths, Buried with him in baptism, resurrected with him, um, we have that kind of typology. Now we're going to move on and um, see some of the other actions of Elisha, and we are going to have we are going to have challenges in the section this week and and in two weeks. And the challenges are going to be uh, chron- chronology, trying to figure out how on earth this all fits together. Uh, spoiler alert: it kind of doesn't. It's topically arranged as opposed to chronologically arranged we're gonna have some overlap with names that is also difficult to work out so we'll see some of that and then we also just frankly have some gruesome and difficult uh especially from us in a you know modern very comfortable society some gruesome and difficult uh, subject material that we've got to discuss um and then we have some some political intrigue and that kind of thing which um, is also fascinating but difficult for us to reckon with uh, kind of on a theological level and a two kingdoms doctrine level if you will. Um, So anyway we'll talk about all of this. We've got a lot to discuss. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be challenging Um, and that's what I have to say by way of preface. Let's jump in to chapter 6 verse 8. You can see here already once, and if you drop down to the study note, um, the Hebrew here indicates non-chronological order of this collection of events from Elisha's life. So that is the case, and when we move to the next section over in chapter 6, verse 24, you're going to have this word afterward, and um, again, this is going to be non-chronological sequence okay. verse 8 once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel he took counsel with his servants saying at such and such a place shall be my camp but the man of God sent word to the king of Israel beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there All right, so what exactly is going on? The king of Syria is planning that, hey, we're all going to camp here. We're warring against Israel. This is going to give us a strategic advantage. Nobody knows this, but his inner cabinet. But the man of God, that is Elisha, uh, knows by miraculous work of the Lord, knows and warns the king of Israel not to pass by the place. Verse 10, And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice Uh, he sends a reconnaissance party and they corroborate that which Elisha had said verse 11 and the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing and he called his servants and said to them will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, there's a traitor in our midst. So, who is he? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Uh, All right, a little bit of, um, like, sort of uh, embellishment here, but the point is that since God is true God of all. He knows this information. He passes that on to Elisha. Elisha passes it on to the king of Israel. Verse 13, and he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. All right. well the king of Syria understandably gets upset with Elisha finds out where he is, surrounds the city. When the servant of the man of God, so the servant of Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He, Elisha, said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them then elisha prayed and said o lord please open his eyes that he may see so the lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around elisha all right so this is this is a miraculous occasion and what a, what a beautiful testimony this is. In fact, the, uh, the Lutheran Study Bible gives you a number of quotes from church fathers in this regard, and including Luther. I will just sort of paraphrase and summarize these, commend those to your reading. Um, but there is this beautiful truth that if we knew how many angels and archangels were gathering all around us, if we could see uh, as Elisha saw and as this young man was given to see, um, we would see that we're not outnumbered. We would see that the forces of good are greater than the forces of evil, that everything is in control in the hands of God and going exactly according to what he permits and what he ultimately plans. So there's a beautiful kind of comfort we can take in this um, more broadly for ourselves. And we see that God was backing Elisha in such a way that what Elisha, if he would have interpreted this event by sight by what he saw he would have had reason to be terrified and yet in faith he entrusted himself to God and God's protection and indeed God did provide that so a lot of a lot that we can take from this a great deal of comfort we see the chariots of fire here of course there was a chariot of fire connected with Elijah's uh, ascension into heaven and so here we can see um, the, uh, the horses and chariots of fire, angelic army here, um, encamped around, uh, prepared to help uh, Elisha. Uh, we have yet another Old Testament example of this kind of connection between the heavens and the earth and this idea that, again, it's given to us in scriptures. It's largely lost to us in our latter time. But, but we have no reason to believe that it is, doesn't remain this way today that the forces of heaven uh, align themselves with the godly below and help and aid us. Um, I, I mean, even so far as, as physical combat, I don't see why that would be off the table or why we should somehow artificially exclude that. Um, And then, of course, the primary emphasis, though, given in the New Testament um, to our spiritual warfare and putting on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, buckler of truth, boots of the gospel, uh, and the sword, uh, which is the spirit of God, etc. I might have left something out there, but you get the gist, Ephesians 6. So then we can be assured that the heavenly angels are fighting for us and are beside us as well. Even though we might feel very lonely as Christians here in America and even more lonely as Lutherans (laughs) in in a sea of Christendom that is quite Americanized and bizarre, um, we should comfort ourselves with this knowledge that God and his good angels are all around us. We're not alone. We have not only them but the whole company of the saints as well. All right, moving on then. Verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. Now, of course, there's some thematic play going on here. This, In a sense, the servant of Elisha was blind. His eyes had to be opened in order to see the angelic army around them. Um, and now... Uh, with this conceptual play going on you have Elisha praying that the Lord will blind the Syrians please strike this people with blindness so he struck them with blindness in accord with the prayer of Elisha and Elisha said to them this is not the way and this is not the city there's a little trickery going on here a little trickery a little uh, Deceit, and here might be if we wanted to get into the argument of whether all deceit is inherently evil Here we could point to this text and say no Um, Not any more than a woman putting makeup on her face is deceitful uh, Even though it's not exactly honest, is it? Um, Or uh, us clothing ourselves in certain ways And then of course the truth is that all conflict to one degree or another, but a particularly military conflict is nothing but deceit. That's essential to the nature of combat. You don't ever broadcast to the enemy, here's where I am and here's what I'm doing. In fact, everything you do is contrary to that. So there are many examples to which we could point to show, see that not all deceit is inherently evil. And that's the case here, too. So. Um, elisha tells and you're going to see elisha's intent in all of this too which is really amazing so elisha said to them this is not the way this is not the city follow me and i will bring you to the man whom you seek and he led them to samaria as soon as they entered samaria elisha said "O lord open the eyes of these men that they may see so the lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold they were in the midst of samaria so you're, off the, you're going off to kill this prophet of Israel who's been troubling you and who you can't, you know, you can't make any headway because of him. The next thing you know, as a Syrian soldier, the next thing you know, your eyes are open and you are in the enemy capital completely surrounded. And what a nightmare that would be. But that is what the Lord does. Verse 21, As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Seems a little excited there. He, Elisha, answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So this is incredible. A show of hospitality, a show of mercy to one's enemies at the at the heart of Israel. It's just a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. So God, through Elisha, has mercy on those who were seeking to kill Elisha. I mean, what a beautiful type of, of Christ as we as we look at those who were his executioners and in the deeper theological sense all of us were all of fallen humanity was and yet despite that he has mercy on us not only forgives us but gives us food shows us hospitality and makes of us friends and so that's what occurs in fact even more than bread and water as it turns out because if you look at verse 23 so he prepared he uh, we would assume here the king prepared for them a great and when they had eaten and drunk he sent them away and they went to their master and the syrians did not come again on raids into the land of israel so this makes for peace this sh- great showing of mercy is then returned with uh, with peace how could it be otherwise what a shameful thing to attack those who had been so merciful and hospitable to you to your army so I don't know a great a great lesson here on I would I would maybe highlight two points you can't really have mercy until you've been trapped (laughs) there's no room for mercy there's no ability to have mercy there's no proper place for mercy you would just simply be run over uh, unless you first um, have them surrounded as it were and I think that that's that's point one very interesting to think of in terms of conflict And then point two is once you've achieved that end, or rather, God has granted that end to you, then you have opportunity for mercy, right? And so I have come to think of conflict as much, much that way in many instances, that conflict is absolutely necessary in order that you can establish an opportunity to show mercy. That's really the point of conflict. If you don't have the conflict, you won't have an opportunity to show mercy. Uh, that's why we engage in conflict, um, to ultimately ultimately show mercy when and where that's appropriate. Now, of course there are times where it's not appropriate, but uh, here is an instance where it is. So I think a beautiful, beautiful uh, text and event, and one that evokes uh, you know, some thinking um, in terms of what the, what the archetypes are here, what the messages are here for us to uh, imbibe as Christians and how we ourselves have been treated by Christ and how therefore we ought to treat those who reckon themselves to be our enemies. All right, so this uh, constitutes then a rather miraculous event on the part of Elisha because by all intents and purposes, you know, from a human vantage point, he should have died. Um, he was granted miraculous insight into the king's plans, the king of Syrians' pl- serious plans. He should have died. He was saved from the city. Not only saved from the city, but turned the tables on his enemies and then showed his enemies mercy. Beautiful, beautiful account. All right, any uh, questions, comments on that, anything I missed or anything you'd like to highlight uh, before we move on to the next episode, Ben-Hadad's Siege of Samaria.
1: Um, I was just going to comment that, you know, often mercy is perceived as weakness in our world. And Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I come away thinking uh, we should be praying for opportunities to show mercy. Um, And uh, in that, though, when mercy is received, then how do we handle where the glory goes? You know, in other words, uh, how do we... um, Is it us that are giving the mercy to our, let's say, our wives Mm -hmm. or whoever we're in conflict with, you know, a neighbor, whatever? And uh, so if you could just comment on that a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, maybe it's easier for me to speak in generalities because if, if we get into a specific instance or relationship that, you know, takes on a certain degree of complexity. But if we just keep it, keep it generic, what we're really talking about here, in essence, is law and gospel. You know, that's, the the law here manifest in this is to entrap them so that they see they're entrapped, so that they have nowhere, they realize they're at, at the mercy of God. And then God shows mercy, that's the gospel. In order to have an opportunity for the gospel, I think this was kind of the first part of your point, Barry, in order to have opportunity for the gospel you have to first have the law. If you just go around saying to everyone, you know, you're forgiven. Or what if, what if, and let's put it in the concrete example of this story. What if, what if Elijah had stood on the wall and said, my friends, my friends, why don't you come on in and have dinner? Let's have, I want to show you mercy and hospitality. What do you think they would have done? They would have been like, yeah, okay, open the door. <laughs> and they would have, they would have captured him. They would have trampled him, you see. So that would, what would that be an example of? Gospel before law. Yeah, it would be it would be a kind of it would be a kind of gospel reductionism. Hey, all we all, all this boils down to is just being nice to people and telling them uh, you know they're they're reconciled to us, and they're reconciled to God, and everything will be great. Um, no, it's just that's not reality. That's not the dynamics of long gospel. That's not the dynamics here. Um, they have to they have to realize they're encircled, and before you can show mercy, and then and then what a great opportunity to say. You know this this small mercy I've been I've shown you is, is just a is just a fragment of the mercy that God has shown us, that God has shown me, that God shows you, and you know you get this you get this great opportunity then to to share the gospel and that kind of thing. Um, so, again, without, uh, and I'm not sure that this is exactly the template that I would use for like a husband and wife relationship. <laughs> um, you know. But but in terms of uh, in terms of some sort of uh, yeah I mean some sort of conflict where because what are the dynamics here the dynamics it's not that Elisha is on the offensive as such um, but in this particular account Elisha finds himself on the defensive being attacked so then I would say that that's like. And certainly not. Certainly, a parallel wouldn't be like one's wife or children, or you know, kind of close proximity. I mean, these are people that have no relationship other than one side sees themselves as the enemy of, of the other side. So, th- that's the kind of circumstance to which you'd want to apply this. We uh, we had. Uh, well, we regularly have vandals here at, the, at the, uh, the church. As you can tell, we've got iron gates everywhere. We've got security cameras everywhere. It really doesn't deter them. It's <laughs> kind of bizarre. Um, but very frequently, I'm here, and I'll hear something. Okay, So in this, in this particular instance, um, what they had done was taken a drill to the gate right out here, and uh, and and that way they could just break through the lock, you know, basically drilling out part of it, break through the lock, open it up, and then have this whole entire area as their skateboard park. Okay. So, um, you know, what what should I do when I'm on campus and see this? So, do you go out and say? Hey everyone, I see that you've destroyed our property, you're trespassing, you've violated everything, but I want to let you know that we love you and you're forgiven and everything's great. Why don't let's, let's sit down and have a Coke together. Is that really the appropriate response? Oh. oh! Of course that's not the appropriate response. The appropriate response is to call the police, which I did. And the police arrived. And of course the police being... Relatively incompetent. we in the process of letting them go when I came outside and said, "Excuse me, what are you, what are you doing? You're supposed to be the law. Um, you're not. you to let them go." So they ended up. They ended up uh, apprehending one of these kiddos. And um, and my entire angle in this thing was, uh, no, they. You know, his parents need to come. We need to have a little reckoning here so that this doesn't keep happening. And. And then once you have them, to draw this back to the text, once you have them encircled in the city, once there's no escape, then is the opportunity to show mercy. Do you want to press charges? No, I don't want to press charges. Um, then I can express, listen, I understand what it's like to be young and bored, and, you know, but understand what it's like for our perspective. We're not going to push this any further. We're not going to pursue this any further. You know and, and try, to, try to exhibit and exude some form of mercy in that situation. Right? So that would be a kind of modern day parallel to this text, I think. Um, you know, Leading with mercy is foolish, uh, but not looking for an opportunity to show mercy is equally foolish. So I think that that's the kind of take home, broadly speaking, from a text like this. All right, on to uh, Ben-Hadad's siege. Okay, now you can tell that afterward, and the study note on verse twenty-three even points this out, that this seems uh, contradicted, because afterward Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army. What did we just? What did, was the previous line? The Syrians did not come again onto the ra- uh, on raids into the land of Israel, and then this would seem to contradict that. Um, as the study note says, but the miracles are not arranged in chronological sequence. And you can go back and see the note on chapter uh, 4, 1 through 8:15 just to have that corroborated for you. But the whole point here is not chronology, it's a listing of the miracles of Elisha. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cob of doves, dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Okay, yeah, what do they want this stuff for? well there's a famine and they're being besieged so this is the beginning of the ugliness and realities that you know i think i think um, we are very very much sheltered from um, you can see that in other times and places in other parts of the world there's no doubt in the world about original sin the depths of man's depravity the judgment of god the powers of satan at work and in control Um, we deceive ourselves by kind of sitting in a snow globe of uh modern society not not subject to these things they're very uncomfortable for us Uh, and it and i think in some ways it's um as bizarre as it seems it's this is uh This is medicinal for us because it opens our eyes to reality as it is in this world, or at least as it can be experienced in this world. So a donkey's head is not something that people normally eat. That's pretty low on the food chain. Not in a siege. In fact, in a siege there's this astronomical price, 80 shekels of silver, um, just to be able to eat a donkey's head. Now, there's some question as to what they want to do with the dove's dung. Uh, if you look at the study note, possibly the name of a plant that ordinarily was not eaten. Let's go with that. Yeah. All <laughs> right. Um, and then it goes on. In some sieges, people could be driven to seek nourishment from various kinds of excrement. So if you run out of peanut butter, there's always, no, I don't know. It's not good to think about, but this is, uh, <laughs> Yeah, this is just showing how severe things got in these circumstances. And it's going to get even more disturbing. Probably if you're under 18, you might want to turn off the, uh, the online experience here. Uh, but, verse 26, Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall... A woman cried out to, say, to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? Which, that's kind of a bitter response. You can see that like the king is very, very jaded. At, well, hello, you're in the office of God in the civil sphere. Like, you are the, the mask of God to enact his justice. And he is so he's so bitter and sarcastic. Um, anyway, you can just already you can see like the that the spiritual depravity of of the king is matched in the depravity of the circumstances. And that increasingly becomes evident. If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Um, And I think that this is, uh, yeah, so the study note says the king of Israel blamed God for the suffering to disguise his own shortcomings. And this threshing floor and wine press, it simply says out of reach, outside the city walls. So, you know, obviously she's dying of hunger the king knows that too so he's being bitter and nasty in that regard verse 28 and the king asked her what is your trouble she answered this woman said to me give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow now a king and an argument between two women over a son do we do we remember hearing this before remember solomon oh how far we've fallen yeah, I think that that's part of why this is included and worded in such a way is like you take us all the way back to Solomon which really with Solomon at the you know is the introduction of idolatry and the breach of the covenant into Israel in a, in a manifest way. And you think back there and you think of the trouble that they had and it was it was serious and severe I mean you know a woman trying to steal a, another woman's child but look how far we've fallen look what idolatry and breach of the covenant have brought us now we're in this absolute like horror show scenario so um, I think you know very artistic sweeping way um, we're told of the downfall of Israel and the absolute just demonic monstrous depths to which Israel has fallen in turning away from God that is the only alternative okay so there was a deal between these two women give, give your son we're going to eat him today and then um, you'll eat we'll eat your son tomorrow but of course there's a double cross on this so we, verse 29, so we boiled my son and ate him. Can you imagine? You're before the king saying this. And you're in the midst of just this disgusting, outrageous act of uh, murdering your own child and cannibalism and everything else. And, um, and yet you're suing for justice. You're suing for justice. As if, like, this, this is a normal thing. Ah, It's just, it's wretched. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Very, very rational response, isn't it? The reason why we're here, the reason why this monstrosity has happened, the reason why I have to hear this, the reason why we're besieged, the re- it's all Elisha's fault. And of course, what's really going on behind this? I mean, some Christians, probably any pastor can tell you of this experience. It's not really Elisha. This king hates and despises God. If he could get his hands around God's throat, he would do to God what he's going to do to Elisha. So this is all kind of a transference onto Elisha. It's, what he really means, of course, is this is all God's fault, and um, he's, instead he's going to say this is all Elisha's fault, and he's going to say, hey, this will all be better if Elisha's just dead. I mean, again, in hindsight, 2020, it doesn't make a lot of sense in the context. This is like blaming the messenger. And in context, this seems to make some sort of perverted sense or logic to him. But obviously not to us being so far removed. Okay, so verse 32. So the king has made this sworn this oath. You know, and I mean, look at this. Look at, this is just dripping with sarcasm and bitterness. And, because what does he say? May God do so to me. I mean, he hates God. He despises God. He's planning on murdering God's servant. And he's doing so in the name of God. And of course, the author is highlighting all of this. And it's just dripping irony and bitterness and cynicism. May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, that, like an assassin. So the king sends an assassin. But before the messenger, uh, or the assassin, <laughs> arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger, the assassin, comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Then he says, is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And this is, you know, that's a confusing line. This is how the study note takes it, uh, 632. 632 the Lord showed Elisha that the king regretted his command and was rushing to stop the executioner. Okay, So then, again, what does this mean? It's not the sound of his master's feet behind him. The king is rushing to undo this thing if he can. So shut the door, prevent him, buy some time. I mean, that's the sense that the study note gives us of of this otherwise kind of obscure language. Verse 33 And while he was still speaking with them, that is, Elisha speaking with uh, the, uh, the other elders, the messenger, the assassin, came down to him and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Again, grammatically very, very difficult, very, very confusing. This is how the study note takes it. The messenger came, that's the phrase, compressed sentence means, quote, the messenger came down and the king who came down immediately behind him said, um, this trouble is from the Lord, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Then the referent is like the siege is from the Lord the lord is our deliverer but he's not delivering why should we la- wait any longer like that then becomes i think the sense but it is uh, it is challenging so this troubles from the lord why should i wait elisha apparently had um, promised god's intervention right so they're lamenting this siege the attack is from the lord um, the implication is you elisha promised that God would intervene. Why should we wait any longer? Like God's taking too long to intervene. That that seems to be that seems to be the sense. So I'm not going to correct the study note on this point at all. I'm just going to remark that it's that's a particularly uh, difficult set of verses here to to get the sense of, and and certainly there's nothing wrong with what the study note um, indicates here. So I would just. Go with that. All right. um, Now, chapter 7 is really a continuation of this story. It's a very artificial chapter break here. Of course, not part of the original text. So simply a continuation. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sh- sold for a shekel, and a seah is uh, seven quarts or seven point three liters. Now, what was the donkey's head going for? What was the the per donkey head rate? It was how many eighty shekels? Yeah. So this is this is unimaginable, unimaginable um, relief. And it's all coming tomorrow. I mean, this must have sounded absolutely ridiculous in their ears. Tomorrow about this time of sia of fine flour should be sold for a shekel and two sias of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria, which is, um, that means the siege is over. It's not like God's just going to like drop food from heaven or something because the siege is going to be over if they're able to buy and sell at the gate. So this must, I mean, this would just be like, This would be the most impossible to believe promise imaginable. I mean, everybody's starving to death, and look, tomorrow everybody's going to have food and the siege is going to be over. How could that possibly be? Verse 2, then the captain on whose hand the king had leaned, now that's just idiomatic for being very close to the king, said to the man of God, to Elisha, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Now, this is, um, maybe it doesn't strike us this way, but this is very clearly from the context, we we can see that this is a rather insulting, scoffing, that this is not true in the least, and kind of a mocking of Elisha and of God. So I think, think as the context will show, this is uh, more severe than maybe comes across in the English. Okay, in response, Elisha said, but he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And that's ominous. You don't want to hear that. You're going to see it, but because of your unbelief, because of your mockery and scoffing, uh, something's going to happen to you and you're not going to be able to partake of it. All right, 7-3 is a continuation of this episode. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter in the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come. Let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. All right, so they're looking at it as like death, death, or death with the possibility of life. Let's take that one. (laughs) So, a little bleak here. Verse 5, so they arose at twilight to go to the camp uh, of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. All right. Well, Not that we need this. I mean, maybe it was just miraculous. But where might we, how might we connect this with what we had previously heard such that this is a a, a real sound? Maybe it is that same chariots and horsemen of the heavenly armies that now surround the camp of the Assyrians, and God gives them, just as He opened the servants' eyes to see them, He opens the Syrian army's ears to hear them, and they become terrified. Now, is that absolutely necessary? No. I mean, God could have just miraculously put the sound in their eardrums or brains or what have you. Um, but I think since it is in such close proximity with that other text, it, it, probably, is, uh, it probably is accurate to view it as, as, in fact, the heavenly army gathered around the Syrians, whom they mistake for an earthly army. Verse 7. Um, so they think they're trapped. They think somehow uh, Israel, the king of Israel has gotten word out and they've been surrounded by these other kings and now they're entrapped and they're going to die. And so verse 7. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Ah, here, looting, looting. (laughs) (laughs) Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right this day is a day of good news if we are silent and wait until the morning light punishment will overtake us like okay well we've plundered enough here we should probably go alert the city the people who are starving to death that they can come here and find sustenance now therefore come let us go and tell the king's household So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. The king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city." Mm -hmm. So the king of Israel thinks this is a trap, which, frankly, is probably a reasonable assumption. Verse 13, And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Like, in other words, if we're sending them to their death, they're going to die anyway, so send them. Let us send and see. Verse 14, So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord so this is how god makes his miracle occur and not only are they no longer under siege and thus they can trade at the gate but they are trading um, for exactly the low prices that elisha had previously mentioned we have yet one more instance of this old testament biblical theme and type of god plundering the wicked and giving uh, The riches of the wicked into his people's hands and this is um of course we see this the maybe the the number one type of this although you could argue it's in it's even in noah's noah's ark that story Um, but where you have the plundering of the egyptians the egyptians enrich the people as the people are leaving this idea that that the enemies end up being the ones that enrich God's people, and God's people don't do anything but just receive the riches. That is ultimately, by the way, fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth when all the, all the wicked wealthy of the world who have acquired and kept their wealth through wickedness are removed, and it is received by the poor of the earth who believe in Christ Jesus um, gratis, without any work or labor. So it is, it is, in a sense, um, ultimately a type, an archetype that's fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth, the plundering of the nations, all their wealth brought into the kingdom of Christ and to his people. Um, I don't know. I don't know how fruitful it is, but you can, you can very legitimately say, as a, as a person who is baptized, I am a child of God and I am an heir of God and all that he has, he has bequeathed and given to me in due time so in a very real sense i mean i don't mean this in a snobby or you know like sinful sense you can look out at the world and say we own all of this already by god's grace he's given it to us Um, it's it it, it is ours even now Um, the use of it is according to god's good pleasure the use of it by others by the wicked is according to god's good pleasure but soon enough it will um, in fact all be handed over to us it already is ours by promise by deed. And so um, there's, you know, there's, I don't know how f- helpful that is to think in those terms, but it is nonetheless true. Okay, well, the story continues on, doesn't it? Verse 17. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate, so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, Two siahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a siah of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. So he was literally at the place, at the locale, (laughs) and he saw with his own eyes, and he died in that place, having not received it. So... Um, A temporal uh, punishment, to be sure, for his uh, insult and unbelief against God. All right, so again, miraculous grace, miraculous judgment, grace and judgment continued theme throughout all of these episodes. And yet one more example of the amazing and powerful works that God worked through Elisha. Um, Elisha as a type of Christ here, delivering his people from being surrounded by the wicked, from starvation. Um, So God, through Christ Jesus, feeds us, defends us from our enemies, and ultimately will cause our enemies to flee away. And we will inherit um, all that they once possessed. All right. That's chapters... Six and seven, six is where this episode began. seven is where it ends and we're on to uh, we're on to chapter eight unless you have any questions or comments anything you'd like to add or anything you saw that I skipped over in uh, in this last episode. Um, not, not seeing any so oh did I you Just Please. had
1: one question what, what happened to the women that were fighting over the sun? Uh, I kind of lost that. Uh,
0: I don't know. Was there any resolution? I didn't. I didn't read. It. I don't recall okay. reading any resolution. Okay. I don't know of any resolution anywhere else in the scriptures in regard to that account. The king made his oath, uh,
1: basically, to murder the man of God. Yeah, I think he was
0: that. so disgusted by the situation, he tears his clothes, which is ironic, of course, and and he, it's revealed that he's got sackcloth underneath, which is ironic, of course. So there's this, there's this form, but not the substance. There's even the form in what he says, you know, swearing an oath to God that God's representative would die. I mean, there's all this form and no substance. And rightfully, a kind of disgust at, uh, at the depravity, and yet just more depravity piled upon until. And, and here is an example, you know, of God showing. Um, showing just grace and mercy uh, apart from any worthiness or merit on the part of the king or the people or anything else I mean, it's just it's an atrocious and disgusting circumstance it's really monstrous and demonic isn't it i mean you can just see the demonic nature of this thing and what the women are doing and what they're arguing about i mean you'd hard you could hardly come up with it with some sort of like uh well, what is that where the hansel and gretel or some i mean it's just it's a murderous and disgusting kind of uh, terrifying, demonic story, and of course it's history. Um, it's really disturbing. And to takeaway though is how
1: idolatry has crept into the people and their instincts are going in that direction, and it continues probably after, even afterwards. So it's a-
0: yeah, the root of it is, a, is an idolatry that takes them away from God, away from his covenant, And when you go away from God and away from his covenant, you don't go into a neutral space, which is the great illusion we all suffer from, is I can walk away from God and I can just be me or I can just be neutral or I can just be a person in this world. It's really just binary. If you walk away from God, you're walking into the demonic. And that's uh, what these people realize and why these things are recorded, that we would realize that. I think you could also maybe depict, if you want to dwell on this, I've kind of hesitated to, um, but you can also see the selfish nature of evil at work. So much selfishness that, uh, that mothers would consume their own children. I mean, that's a complete reversal of creation. In a sense, it's a reversal. It's, an, it's kind of an anti-Christ icon because, um, you know what is god's love for us not that he would take our life for his own but that he would lay down his life for us even give himself as our food you see how this is a kind of reverse um, sacrament a reverse eucharist that's taking place here these women ought to be laying down their lives for their children um, not that they could give themselves for food for their children but that should be their idea so far removed from them than taking their children as their own food and sustenance, taking their life for their own life. So there's, there's an anti-Eucharist at play here. And again, you can see the marks of the, the demonic. In contrast, then, of course, the gospel, that God gives his son for us, the son lays down his life for us, gives himself as food for us, that we might have life, and a complete inversion of the demonic episode we see here. Yeah, I'm sure there's more to ponder here. These are uncomfortable things to ponder, uncomfortable things to think about. And of course, they're just sad realities. I, and I, I don't know, maybe we're not so far away from it when you, think of like the re, like when you think of the nature of abortion in our country and the reason why abortion is done. It's, it's usually done just for the most, I mean, you, could, you might even argue like this, like at least these women killed their children because um, it was a matter of lo- their own life and death. Why do we kill our children? so that we can have financial freedom or sexual freedom or whatever it is, that, or not have the, have the obligation. So I don't know, maybe, maybe in that sense, these women would raise up and judge our country and say, we did what we had to do out of necessity. You do what you do for pleasure for far less. Maybe they would see us as far more demonic as a culture. I, I just, it's chilling to think about. It's chilling to think about for me, because I think that's a lot of what the judgment is going to be is like suddenly we all come to our senses and see things as they truly are, and like there's just this shock of horror that you didn't even realize what, what was, how bad it was. Because of course there's evil mm-hmm. in us, blindness in us. But I digress, please.
1: Um, the, along those same lines, that's just what I was thinking. We're kind of fighting the fight at our schools now with oh. curriculum and what they're going to try and brainwash children with. And, uh, you know, it's been asked of me, why aren't more people upset about this? It's because we've been going down this antithetical lifestyle where as long as we feel good about what we're doing, Mm -hmm. we're okay. As -hmm. long as the kids are healthy, we're okay. And it doesn't matter what trash we're putting in their heads. Yeah. And, uh, you know... it's a way of sacrificing children it's yeah it's no different
0: right yeah yeah that's right and I think you know I think we should say too because I know that um, you know I I, maybe maybe in the context of this you would you would ask this question I don't think the text asks this question but as we meditate upon it we might you know is there forgiveness even for this monstrous demonic act that these women were doing yeah that's what it means for christ to be the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world while we want to be absolutely truthful and absolutely um, clear in what we in what we say and clear in our condemnation of this egregious act and and um, the egregious act of abortion we still also though want to say especially to those who are who are stung by this and crushed by this who have been misled by their own sinful nature misled by a sinful culture misled by the demonic forces into committing these great sins we still want to um, be able to say this is why christ came this is what it means for him to bear the sins of the world this is what it means for him to Uh, be stripped naked and shamed and put to death on the cross Uh, that uh, that even the most grievous and horrific and demonic of our sins might be claimed by him as his own no longer ours and thus he makes atonement for them takes them away so that we can truly be right with god truly be reconciled to god that's the power of the gospel the power of the gospel is greater than the power of sin so just because we, I mean, we want to be absolutely clear about naming sin, we live in a lawless age. So step one is let's name the sin and let's get the law right. But step two is also let's see the whole point of that, that there is in fact and in truth deepest redemption in Christ Jesus and a forgiveness that goes infinitely deeper than all of our sins and a cleansing by the very blood of God that purifies us from all demonic influences and sins and filth pure in christ so that's what we are and that's the christian message and that's why we're calling all men and all sinners to christ um, that they with us might be redeemed and be forgiven for all eternity okay uh no we only have one minute left so there's no sense in jumping into chapter eight two weeks from now two weeks from now let's jump into second kings chapter eight the lord be with you